Welcome to Real Crime NYC, where you'll hear real New York City crime stories told by real New York City cops. I'm Pat. Join Chris, Bill, and I for this week's episode about a 26-year-old Connecticut man who heads to Manhattan for a night out partying with friends. Well, the night didn't turn out like any of them could have planned. Before we get into the case, please hit follow to get all of Real Crime NYC's episodes. Okay, guys? What do you got? Hey, Pat, it was uh, Monday, November 14, 2016, and the 17th Precinct Detective Squad receives a missing persons report from Sanford, Connecticut Police Department. Sanford, Connecticut Police Department tells the squad that a 26-year-old Hofstra University graduate named Joseph was just reported missing from his father and his uncle. Joseph spent the weekend partying with friends down in Manhattan's Meatpacking District at a club called Gilded Lily on 15th Street. At 4 a.m. when the club's closing, Joseph and his friends leave the club. They go outside, and they meet three girls and a guy named Larry. They're all chatting. They're trying to hook up with the girls, and they decide to keep the party and going. Larry invites them all back to his friend James' apartment up in Sutton Place area of Manhattan. So just to clarify for our listeners, uh, Chris, uh, Sutton Place, that's East 59th Street, which is the Upper East Side of Manhattan. Very wealthy neighborhood, right? Very wealthy neighborhood. It's a prestigious area. Joseph, the girls, and Larry go up to Sutton Place, up to James's apartment, and they continue partying. So let me ask you a question. Why does his father end up reporting him missing? Like, what was suspicious to dad? I mean... I don't think it's unusual that maybe a 26-year-old wouldn't have contact with his parents. He's a grown man for one day. Like, wh why did he end up being reported missing? This father-son relationship was very special. They had a relationship that every son wants to have with a father and every father wants to have with their son. Um, he spoke almost every day. And he was concerned. It was a Sunday. They usually have dinner together, and the son doesn't show up. So what the father does is they have an uncle who's in law enforcement, I believe in Connecticut, and they start searching for his son. So what they were able to do is they realized that the son was out with his friends on that Saturday night, and they go online and they see that there's photos of the establishment on that night of their son and with other people. So they were able to identify one of the three women that he left with. They contact her, and that's how they find out that he went to the 59th Street location later on at four in the morning. Oh, wow. Modern uh, modern technology even allows uh, John Q. Citizen to uh, do a little investigative work on their missing family member before they even get the police involved. So now they actually go into the 17th precinct, as Chris had said, and they reported. And they were very lucky because the 17th detective squad is one of the top-notch detective investigators in, in the world. And they ended up getting a case detective that was very compassionate and very empathetic. And again, this comes in as a missing person. So how many missing persons in New York City are there a day? And the case detective and the squad commander and everybody involved really took this serious from the very beginning. They saw the father's face and they saw the emotions involved. And they realized that there's probably something going on here. Normally, as Pat on our prior episodes, 99% of the time, these missings come up, they're either sleeping off the night and they get found at a friend's place or at a, on a sofa somewhere. But they do get found. And you have to give the credit to this detective because this is not really considered what we call a special category missing, where you would pull out all the stops and mobilize people to try to find them. 
this is a routine missing. It's a, a an adult male who they know what his intentions were to go out to Manhattan and, and have a little party, and he did. So it's not that unusual, like Bill was saying, for him to turn up missing, and we probably figure he's going to turn up in a day or two. But they took this one real seriously, and they jumped on it right from the get-go, and they deserve credit for that. Yeah, well, you know right away when something stinks. You have a responsible person. This isn't his routine behavior. He's never done this before. He always maintains contact with his family and friends. And, and clearly his friends must have felt something was wrong. So you put everything together, and that's how you know right away something's wrong here. We have to go forward with this quickly. Even if it's not your special category missing, even if it's not your elderly or your, your, your special needs child, you know right away when there's a problem. Okay, so now we're concerned. What's the first steps those detectives take? Well, they went over to the location where he was last seen, and they start to speak to- You mean the club? No, they actually go to the location of the residence on 59th Street in Sutton Place. And when oh, they, okay. Yeah, when they go there, they speak to the building manager, they speak to security. They realize that these women had said they were in a fourth floor apartment. They go up to the apartment, and they do their preliminary investigation. Have you seen Joey? They'll show pictures, photos of him, and then they'll start to look at video. And when they look at the video, they realize that Joey was in there with these three women. So they get there at four in the morning. It's about seven in the morning on Sunday. They see Larry, Joey, and the three women leaving the building. The three women get into a cab. And for whatever reason, Joey does not get in the cab with them. Wow, so Joey's alive the next morning. That's a good thing. Right. You see Larry and Joey go back into the building. And we have no reason to believe at this point while we're doing the investigation that Joey's anything but a missing at this point. Well, yeah. I mean, the night before, uh, there was a video that they showed. I believe it was online or they had it on one of the phones. And it was of them partying inside this apartment. They're having fun. They're dancing around. You see, uh, you see the guy, James. You see Larry. They're dancing. And you see the girls. And they're having nothing but a good time. So you're painting a good picture of what's going on in the apartment. They end up back at that apartment. Uh, I'm assuming there's some drinking going on, maybe some music. Do you have them pairing off and maybe separating as couples and hooking up in different rooms? Or is this just one big party? And is there any, uh, you know, there's alcohol, I'm assuming. Is there any drug use involved here? Uh, we believe that there may have been some type of drug. Do we ever end up talking to any of these females? Yeah, the female said that, uh, you know, at one point, uh, Larry and James would dance, and I think they took their shirts off, and they're having a grand old time, and they're like, you know, at some point, they're like, all right, maybe we should leave. What is our guy Joey doing while these two guys are dancing shirtless, and he's got three women there? Joey was talking to the girls. They're partying. Everybody's having a good time. Nobody suspects that anything's going to happen. What we find now is we have a timestamp. We have video of Larry and Joe putting the girls in the cab and coming back in. So we have a timestamp at 7, 7.30 that Joe is alive. These girls know nothing other than they were out partying with a group of guys. And then from there, that's where the real detective work takes place. They were successful in getting the building management to show them the video, which is kind of tough in an area like that. You have a very liberal area, very liberal thinking. A lot of times these big corporations, they don't want to deal with the police. They want subpoenas. You have to have a good relationship with these property managers to see the video at times. The detectives showing the compassion and the empathy really were driven to find that boy alive. So with that, they start asking people questions. One of the suspects end up calling an employee 
of, of the, the resident of the building uh, and asking, do you have cameras and how long is the video stored for? And it was an odd question and the person remembered it and they tell detectives this. Stupid perps so one. Right. So that raises the level of suspicion. So detectives at this point, they're dealing with the Manhattan DA's office and they're trying to get search warrants because there's the fourth floor apartment. And then what they also see on video is James in an elevator going to the 32nd floor. And when he comes back down, he has paper towels and cleaning products. Ding, 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 ding. Well, we have something here also that like we had with Betty in a bag. The other case we talked about, we know he's out in front of the building at somewhere around seven o'clock, right? And he goes back inside the building with one of the males, but we never see him on video actually leave the building under his own steam. So that's why the detectives are focusing on, hey, we got to get in that apartment because number one, he might still be in there. Number two, if something did happen to him, that's the likely place it happened. It's the last place we could put him. Now, throughout the day, James was almost taunting detectives. Good luck finding what you're looking for, he was saying to them. Good luck with the video. He's thinking the video is not recording. Another thing they see, I believe it was Larry walking out of the building with a luggage cart, and it had small luggage bags, small, very small. So why on Sunday night are they ordering a luggage cart? Could a body fit in those little luggage bags? Right. So, I mean, we, we're pretty sure he hasn't left the building. It's a missing persons case. So, I mean, one of the first rules we always had as a missing persons case, you search every inch of that building, like you just said. But now they're kind of suspicious that something has happened to him. They're asking uh, suspicious questions of the building people. They're asking for a luggage cart. There's a few things that's raising them up here. So all these lies, we got to put the gas to the floor and step this investigation up. You have Manhattan South Homicide. You got the 17 detective squad. There were detectives mobilized from throughout Manhattan detectives. They searched every part of that building. So there was a water tower on top. They actually searched the water tower. They searched the basement. They searched every area. One of the things that they did was get a canine, a department canine there. So now at this point, the dogs hit on the garbage out front. Members of the squad start searching through the trash and they find bloody towels. They find bleach. They bingo. also find, they're bingo. They find paperwork documents in those same bags with James Mail in it, his name, his address. So now there's direct connection to James, to that apartment, blood and Really, it just exploded from there. These weren't the smartest perps at all, were they? You know what? They were panicking. Who is this guy, James? What's his background? James is a young millennial. He's a party guy. He's a Manhattan guy. He's a socialite. He was your typical Manhattan 20-year-old. Um, he was full of nightlife. He really didn't have an education or, or a future ahead of him other than partying with his friends. Somehow he had money, um, and he was facilitating a very, very wealthy lifestyle in Manhattan, every 20-year-old's dream. And he hangs out with Larry. So the two of them are like two millennials hanging out, going to clubs and, uh, and partying. And living the good life. And then it all goes bad. It all goes bad because they feel they're above the law. They're, they're, they're full of piss and vinegar. They're in their 20s. They're in their prime. They're having a great time in life. They're meeting beautiful women. Listen, more than likely, they're, they're doing drugs. They're, they're living the night scene. A lot of alcohol. I think you said James has an attorney already at this point, right? For when the search warrant hit? Once detectives received the search warrant, they served the search warrant to James and he had his lawyers there. 
So when detectives get the search warrant and they go in there, they're expecting to see either Joey alive, Joey passed out on a bed sleeping, or they're expecting Joey OD'd. Joey OD'd, or they're expecting a bloody area. So it's got to be one of those. So when they go into the fourth floor apartment, they don't see any of that. They don't see Joey. They don't see a mess. They don't see blood. I mean, it was really odd. So now it's, where could he be? So then they go up to the 32nd floor apartment. Same thing. So you see him in the elevator with the cleaning products. Could he have done that good of a job cleaning up that there was no blood whatsoever? And then you look at, so how did this body get out of the building? I mean, there's small luggages on a luggage cart. The body clearly couldn't fit into that. And you're looking at the windows and you're saying, this is four floors up. How did it get rid of the body? So that was a mystery of how Joey got out of that building. So right now, there's an extreme urgency. Wherever Joey is, we still have hope. And again, the case detective dealing with the father, the father having hope. My son is still alive. And as we've spoken on prior episodes, you have many different detectives being tasked with different things that they're doing simultaneously. Yeah, and it sounds like we're doing these things in sequence, but in actuality, most of these investigative steps are all happening at the same time, you know, so that we're not wasting time on on something that might not be fruitful. Detectives are saying that Larry told them that they took Joey to Oceanport, New Jersey. So there's still urgency going on here. You watch movies, you see the bad guy, thinks they're dead or maybe dead or dying, and they're still alive. And detectives still had hope. They mobilize a group of detectives, and there's urgency, lights and sirens, to this location in New Jersey. How do we know where the, loca- the exact location is? Larry told him. Oh, so Larry's pretty much being cooperative at this point. He's not incriminating himself, but he's being, I mean, he is incriminating himself, but he's not saying I did something, but he is cooperating by leading us to where Joey is. I think it was a matter of, it was the right thing to do. Where's Joey? You have Joey's family members looking for him. You got law enforcement looking for him. Where's Joey? He's in Oceanport, New Jersey. This is where he's at. Yeah. And now Larry has to prepare for his own defense at this point. He knows what's going on. He's trying to give a little, but not give enough to incriminate himself and also protect himself. All right. So now we know that they left the building. We're on our way to Jersey. There's still a tiny little one in a million glimmer of hope that he's alive. Is Larry with us on the way to Jersey? No, he's not. A lawyer walks into the precinct and says that he represents Larry, which then detectives have to stop speaking to him. And James probably arranged for that, right? Unknown. Well, someone that knows James. So it's really going to be a needle in a haystack then once we get to, to Jersey. I mean, I'm assuming he described the general area where it is, but how, how do we actually pinpoint where this uh, where Joey is or the body is, and how do we actually find it? That's got to be real interesting. So the area that he describes is in a florist on a, a plot of land uh, by the Jersey Shore. This is a farming area. They, they had uh, some farming equipment, and next to the farming equipment, there was a gasoline can. And it was an area where kids used to hang out and do like campfires at night. All right. So, yeah, that, that, that's normal. If, you, if you're going to dispose of a body, probably one of the people involved know a secluded place, and, and that's how we got it. Oh, so this is uh, another thing uh, that's interesting here. This is outside of New York State. So 
We actually have no law enforcement authority there. We have to involve the local law enforcement, although they're probably going to be happy to see us handling it as opposed to them handling it, right? So detectives say that that night they get there at about one o'clock in the morning, going lights and sirens down to the location. The plot of land was owned by, I believe, three siblings, and they had to get authorization from all three to go onto the property and to take a look. It was one in the morning. That complicates things a lot. Very complicated. And it was one in the morning. The uh, canines from the NYPD were exhausted because they were working the location in Manhattan all day. So they had a Monmouth County canine handler and the canine go to the location and meet NYPD detectives, Monmouth County law enforcement, and also Oceanport law enforcement at the location at one in the morning. You know, the detectives are saying, everyone's looking at themselves and saying, how are we going to find Joey here? He, he gives a real rough description of the area, but it was definitely enough to come up with a, a radius of where it could be. The afternoon, it was a rainy day, which the canine handler said actually helps in the search for any bodies or human beings. The moisture holds in the Keeps body the gases, lower. the scents, and, uh, and it could help the canine. The dog makes a motion. The canine handler comes back and gets a probe, and he starts probing in the area where the canine is, is indicating that there's something there. And it looks like there's a, a shallow grave. He gets a shovel, and he starts clearing away the soil. Our worst nightmares are realized. There's a body, and it looks like it's Joey. Wow. So now we have a homicide. A couple of things factor in here. We now have to tell the family that Joey's not coming home. We have a crime scene, a disposal of a body that's in a different state where we're not actually in charge of law enforcement there. We have to cooperate and, and, and get them involved. And then we have to go in and get our perps arrested. So what happens next? Well, many times we've had cases where there's bodies discovered, people drop that body off, and it's not necessarily a murder. Could have been an overdose, Good point. right? We've had that before. So at this point, they don't know exactly what they have. They have a body in a shallow grave. Was that person murdered or was it the body just disposed there because they panicked and it was some other related death? Now, the detectives, as empathetic and as compassionate as they are, their number one priority at this point was to notify Joey's father. They wanted to be the one to let the father know that their son was found. So they drove all the way from New Jersey, all the way up to Connecticut to personally let this family know that their son was found. Wow, that's, that's one of the worst things that a detective has to do is tell the family of, of someone that's uh, been murdered or, or otherwise deceased that uh, their loved one is not coming home. Not something any detective looks forward to, but something they will always remember. Not only did they have to notify the family of the deaths, they had to tell them of the, uh, the injuries that Joseph sustained. Joseph wasn't just killed. He was viciously, brutally murdered. They stabbed him over 15 times in the body, the chest, the upper chest and the side. They cut his aorta while they were stabbing him. And when he was in the clandestine grave out in Oceanport, they poured gasoline on him and they set him on fire. They had to tell the family that their child was set on fire and dug into and put into a clandestine grave. At some point, they decide, let's pour gasoline on him and try to burn him. Yeah, probably trying to mask the identification for later or try to uh, eliminate any trace uh, evidence that's on the body, DNA or fibers or hairs or anything like that. And believe it or not, some people do believe you could just pour gasoline, set a body on fire, and it's going to be unrecognizable. 
But the reality is, is you need two hours of concentrated heat, 2,000 degrees or greater to uh, pulverize a body to ashes or to burn a body to ashes where it doesn't even look like a body. Well, we knew this wasn't going to turn out good. I mean, think about it. By the time we got to that spot in Jersey and we actually find that there's a body, now we have a body and it's burned. We have blood recovered from the building, bloody clothes. We have one of our suspects collecting uh, cleaning materials and, and probably cleaning the place up. He lawyers up right away. Larry leads us to this dump spot. We now have a body that's burned. Detectives pretty much know what happened here, but we're still going to need a professional to tell us professionally what the cause of death is. And, and that's where the autopsy and the pathologist comes in. The autopsy would be done in Monmouth County. They wouldn't outside. release it to New York City. They, they wanted to do the autopsy. Well, yes. most places have a, a, a local law or rule that says any bodies recovered within that county are the responsibility of the medical examiner from that county. It's not unusual. So as the autopsy is being conducted in Monmouth County, detectives are back now in Manhattan working with the Manhattan DA's office. Crime scenes recovering evidence, working with the Manhattan DA's office, and Monmouth County's doing the autopsy. All this is being done at the same time to determine what a detective's charging, Larry, James, and then there's a third man that was in the apartment at the time. What are they charging and who are they charging with what? All right, so now we have a crime scene at the apartment. We have a crime scene where the body's recovered. We have the ME doing an autopsy on the deceased. We've notified the family. So how do, how do we think, or do we actually know from the, the evidence, how was he actually killed? Joe's in the apartment. They're all partying. This is what we piece together. Well, the ladies have left at this point, and Joey's still alive, right? Joey's still alive. So, so now he, you got a now you got a bad recipe here. You have probably drinking and partying in other ways all night long, uh, throughout the night. You have the females have now left the scene, and you have Joey, who really doesn't know Larry or the other guy, still in this apartment. That's a no, recipe. He's, for he's outnumbered. He's outnumbered. They're intoxicated. Uh, it was a party scene that went bad. They start arguing, tempests start start raging, and something went bad in the apartment, and they start fighting. There's a couple of theories of what started the fight. James and Larry intoxicated, probably on drugs, and he gets this rage inside of him and starts stabbing Joey at some point, and stabbed him so many times that he had dozens of stab wounds on him, and he also had broken bones, his eye sockets were broken. Do we know, how did this body actually leave the building? When we pieced the investigation together, we found out after the dispute happened and they beat Joseph up, they thought he was dead. Now it's believed he wasn't dead from the beating because the pathologist ruled the cause and manner of death to be homicide by sharp force injuries to the chest. We believe they took Joseph, they put him in the bathtub, and they used chef knives that would be found in your, in your kitchen butcher block to try to dismember the body. They tried cutting his arms off. They tried, well, they did. They, they cut some body parts off, and they rolled up the body in a rug, and they threw him out the fourth floor window onto the sidewalk below. They also packaged up whatever body parts they had. They got it on the luggage cart. They brought the car around the front, and they loaded everything into the trunk of the car. We spent months... I mean, months on this case, many, many man hours, many people, the district attorney's office, Manhattan detectives, major case, homicide and forensics, trying to build the prosecution here. What we actually did 
when we went to the apartment was we found the knives in the dishwasher. And there was no sign of any blood on any knife. We processed every knife. We still didn't find any blood under the microscopes, on the lighting. It, there was no signs of blood. We knew based on the fact that his aorta was cut, there was a substantial sized knife that went through his chest. And we didn't find any other knives or there was any other reason to believe any other knife other than those kitchen knives were in the apartment. We had the laboratory break the knives apart, the handles of the knives apart, and we reprocessed those knives a second time. And that's when we found Joseph's blood under the handle of those knives. That's what was the nail in the coffin of prosecution. How did Joseph's blood get under the handle and those knives? We also found Joseph's blood on the bumper of that Mercedes-Benz. Knives are very hard for a, a civilian to completely sterilize. And what might look to the eye to be totally clean of blood and DNA, you know, under the handle, they have no way of knowing that that DNA is there. I actually had a case. It was another stabbing murder, multiple stabbing murders, actually. And uh, under the handle of the knife, we got the perpetrator's DNA, but it wasn't the only DNA that was there. We had an Asian male's DNA under there. And none of the people involved were Asian, so it was a little perplexing at first until a, an experienced medical examiner said, these knives were made in China. That's the DNA from someone who handled this knife when it was being put together. So imagine that, uh, you know, that DNA was still there. The other thing is, I'm assuming they took a hard way of getting that body out of the building and threw it out the window. I'm assuming there's no video on that side of the building. Is that what they were trying to avoid was the video by dumping them out the window? Well, detectives said the video, you could see the car pulling up, but you can't see the actual bag being thrown out the window. But I believe you could see something being rolled up to the back of the vehicle. Right. But I mean, their, their motivation for throwing the body out the window rather than putting it on the lug luggage cart was to avoid the video at the front of the building and in the lobby, I'm assuming, and in the elevator. Yeah, probably. Uh, we did an all-out blitz on that building. We went through every garbage in the in the uh, the, uh, the incinerator, every every. Every article of trash that that garbage had. Yeah, and people are probably wondering, like, you know, it's a couple of days later after the fact. We have these guys in custody. Why are they still searching this building? Well, at the time, we're probably still looking for a what we thought at the time was a discarded murder weapon because we didn't have the results back from the knives from the apartment yet. So everything's still in play. And sometimes it takes, you know, days, sometimes a week, sometimes even more to get that DNA back. So now we're wrapping this up. What are the, you know, how, how did we end up finally uh, arresting and charging these individuals for uh, murder? And what were the actual charges involved? So uh, the evidence was presented to a grand jury. Uh, they were indicted. And eventually they were charged with both of them with murder too, concealment of human corpse, tampering physical evidence. James was found guilty on all charges and sentenced to 28 years to life in prison. And Larry was also guilt, found guilty of all charges and sentenced to 23 years to life in prison. Another sad story of how uh, a normal everyday night out partying can turn into disaster. And that's that. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Real Crime NYC. Hit subscribe and follow us for free access to our most up-to-date episodes. You can find Real Crime NYC on Spotify, Apple, Facebook, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Pat. I'm Chris. And I'm Bill. And we'll see you when we see you.